in our series, um, Great Awakening Matthew Style. This is part 10 of a 12-part series, and it's all about Jesus' passion for revival and Matthew's passion for revival to his church and that impartation of that passion for revival to us down through the ages and to us in Southern Oregon on this, on this day. And David Mickelson will be sharing uh, part 10 today. Give him a warm welcome as he comes and talks to us. David. Is my mic on? There it is. Good morning, everybody. Get my exercise for the month. There we go. You think I'm joking. Ooh, got a little feedback there. Well, good morning. Anybody having a good day so far? Few people, good. I'm assuming it's more than the number of hands I just saw. Okay. Well, you probably have heard this before, but some jokes are worth hearing twice. So pretend like you heard it the first time and laugh just as hard as you did the first time you heard it. A man, his wife, and his mother-in-law took a trip to the Holy Land. And while they were there, the mother-in-law passed away. So the undertaker told the man, you can pay $5,000 and have your mother-in-law shipped back to the United States. Or for $150, we can bury her here in the Holy Land. And he thought about it, and he said, well, I'd just as soon have her shipped back to the United States. And the undertaker said, why would you pay $5,000 when you can have her buried in the Holy Land? And he said, 2,000 years ago, a man died here, and they buried him, and three days later, he rose from the dead. I just can't take that chance. So bad. So bad. Okay. The anchor selection, as you know, is Matthew 24. And if you were here last week, and if you didn't read your Bible the whole week, you probably still have it marked to Matthew 24 because it's the same chapter we did last week. But I won't ask for a show of hands if if that's you. Okay. And I'm also going to preach from the book of Daniel a little because they go together. So I'm going to start actually with Daniel chapter 11. So if you're one of the people who likes to read along, you need Daniel 11 and you need Matthew 24 ready to go. Fingers, one finger in each one. Okay, so Daniel 11 is foundational to Matthew 24. I'm going to just read verse 31. And what's happening here, the, the prophet Daniel is, is prophesying about a coming ruler who will persecute the Jews. This is not a good person. And he says, verse 31, His armed forces will rise up to desecrate the temple fortress and will abolish the daily sacrifice. Then they will set up the abomination that causes desolation. Okay, so bear that phrase in mind while we move on. But what is that about in, for Daniel's prophecy? So what he's talking about here is, uh, if you read this chapter and study it, and we don't have time to read the whole thing and go point by point, but it's very clear it's talking about one particular person in history because Daniel's words line up so perfectly with this guy's life. In fact, it lines up so perfectly that secular Bible scholars say, okay, Daniel is too accurate, this book must have been written four centuries after it claims to have been written, even though all the wording is sixth century wording, not second century wording, because it just is is too perfect. But the person that it lines up with is a guy named Antiochus of Epiphanes. Apparently his mother didn't love him. She named him Antiochus of Epiphanes. But uh, So how do we know that this is what it's talking about? So in 167 BC, this Greek king attacked uh, the Jews in Israel and Jerusalem, and there was a, a big war. A lot of people died, and he finally conquered and captured the temple. And what is the first thing he did when he took over the temple? Well, he walked in and he sacrificed a pig on the altar in the temple to Zeus. 
So he was saying, I'm defiling your temple. To you, pigs are unholy. And I'm declaring that my God, Zeus, is above your God, Yahweh. The, des- the abomination that causes desolation. And by the way, he came to a bad end. The Lord brought him into judgment. He didn't have a good life after that. Uh, so you can study him if you want to. So here's what's interesting about this. Jesus mentions this event, the abomination that causes desolation, in Matthew 24. So we're just going to read Matthew 24, parts of it right now, and then we're going to talk about it. I'm going to read quickly because I'm short on time. So Matthew 24, if I can find where I have this written down here. Jesus, uh, verse 1, Jesus left the temple and was walking away when his disciples came up to him to call his attention to its buildings. Do you see all these things, he asked? Truly I tell you, not one stone here will, will be left on another. Every one will be thrown down. Verse 3, as Jesus was sitting on the Mount of Olives, the disciples came to him privately. Tell us, they said, when will this happen, and what will be the sign of the coming of the end of the age? Jesus answered, watch out that no one deceives you. That's going to be a theme for today. Watch out that no one deceives you. For many will come in my name, claiming I am the Messiah, and will deceive many. Verse 9, you will be handed over to be persecuted and put to death, and you will be hated by all nations because of me. At that time, many will turn away from the faith and will betray and hate each other. And many false prophets will appear and deceive many. Because of the increase of wickedness, the love of most will grow cold. And sometimes it feels like we're getting to that point today. But the one who stands firm to the end will be saved. And this gospel of the kingdom will be preached to the whole world as a testimony to all nations. And then the end will come. Verse 15. So when you see standing in the holy place... The abomination that causes desolation, spoken of through the prophet Daniel. Let the reader understand. So in other words, pay attention, think about it. Then let those who are in Judea flee to the mountains. Verse 22. For then there will be great distress unequaled from the beginning of the world until now, and never to be equaled again. I'm not sure if that lines up exactly with what I had. Then if anyone... Oh, verse 22. For then there will be great distress. Oh, I just read that. Okay, verse 23. Then if anyone says to you, look, here is the Christ, or there, do not believe it. For false Christs and false prophets will rise and show great signs and wonders to deceive, if possible, even the elect. See, I've told you ahead of time. Three times he warns us not to be deceived. Even Christians will be tempted to be deceived by events. So, just to wrap this up, verse 29. Immediately after the stress of those days, the sun will be darkened, the moon will not give its light, the stars will fall from the sky, and the heavenly bodies will be shaken. Then will appear the sign of the Son of Man in heaven. I love that. What's it going to be? What's it going to look like? I don't know. And then all the peoples of the earth will mourn when they see the Son of Man coming in the clouds of heaven with power and great glory. Okay, that's enough for now. Who knew there'd be so much Bible reading in church? Goodness. Okay, in verse 15, we've got a hallelujah on that one. So in verse 15, Jesus tells us, They will see the abomination that causes desolation spoken of through the prophet Daniel. He says that when you see it, it's a good sign. You might want to get out of Jerusalem. Uh, because of what's coming. Flee to the hills, he says. Now, wait, I thought the abomination came in 167 B.C. What's going on here? How could Jesus talk about this like it's going to happen again? That's weird, isn't it? Anybody ever wondered about that? So, here's the thing about some Bible prophecies. Some prophecies actually have more than one fulfillment. I think there's at least one that will have three fulfillments. But some of them have two fulfillments. And I'm going to give you an example, which is kind of a crazy story. So Isaiah 7:14, this is a verse you've all heard, and we hear it every year in December. It says this, Behold, a virgin will conceive and bear a son, and shall name him Emmanuel. So did you know the first fulfillment of this took place 
in Isaiah's own lifetime. Isn't that strange? So when you read Isaiah 7, I'm just going to quickly explain this, because there's only been one virgin conception, it was Mary. So what's, it, what's going on here? In Isaiah 7, there's a king named Ahaz, he's the king of Judah, he's super worried, he's being attacked by all these enemies. He's trying to be a good king, but he's fearful. And Isaiah the prophet wants to encourage him that God is with him. And so he says, here's a sign for you. He says, there's a virgin who will conceive, and she'll give birth to a son, and she'll call him Emmanuel. So the interpretation of this is, she's a virgin now, but pretty soon she's going to get married. She might be one of his own concubines, or they had lots of wives back then. But she's going to conceive when she gets married, and then nine months later she'll, have, she'll give birth to a son. And you won't have to tell her what to name him. She's going to name him Emmanuel on her own. And when she does that, it's a sign to you, God is with you, because Emmanuel means God is with you. And then it goes on to say, before the baby is old enough to eat solid food, you'll be delivered from your enemies. So it's a poetic way of saying, you know, how long does it take for a woman to conceive, give birth, and the baby's old enough to eat solid food? Like, I'm not the expert here, but two, two and a half years from start to finish on that. So in in about two or three years, God will have completely delivered you from your enemies. And here's a sign to you when she names him Emmanuel. Follow that? Now, we know that this verse had a second fulfillment in Jesus. Literally, Mary was a virgin, not just a young woman, a virgin, and she gave birth to a son and called him Emmanuel, and he will be called Emmanuel, God with us. So that verse had a dual fulfillment, once in Isaiah's time and then once in Jesus' time. Do you see that? And there's another example. Hosea 11.1 1 says that out of Egypt I have called my son. And the, the initial meaning was God called Israel out of slavery in Egypt, Right? But Matthew tells us that verse had a second fulfillment in Christ. He literally had to go to Egypt to, to be rescued, to be delivered from Herod, who was trying to kill him, and then he had to come back. God called him back to Israel out of Egypt. Two fulfillments, one prophecy. Isn't God amazing? That, you know, a lot of other religions, the gods can give one prophecy and it has one fulfillment. Our God can give one prophecy and then it has two fulfillments at least. It's pretty amazing stuff. Okay, so God is great. All right, so I lost my place here, of course. That's good. Um, so double fulfillment. So what's, what's the double fulfillment with the abomination that causes desolation? Because we know what happened the first time, 167 B.C. And I'll try not to go too much into history here, although I always kind of <laughs> go that way. It's, where, it's how I made. But in A.D. 66, the Jews revolted against Rome. And three and a half years of horrible fighting later, the Romans conquered Jerusalem. And what's the first thing the Roman general did when he took the temple? His name was Titus. He's a future emperor. He walked into the temple, and he brought three animals with him, a goat, uh, a bull, and, of course, a pig. And he sacrificed those animals to Jupiter, the Roman version of Zeus, right there in the temple once again. And he was saying, our God is greater than your God. So a second abomination of desolations took place in AD 70. Uh, So that's two fulfillments, one prophecy, double meaning. All right, I think I made that case pretty clearly. So I believe there may be a third fulfillment coming at the end of the age for this prophecy. Uh, and I'm getting that based on 2 Thessalonians 2.3. And Paul is talking to the uh, Thessalonians about the second coming. Because they're, a lot of them are worried that it already happened and they missed it. And a lot of them had quit working. They're just waiting around, with the, kind of sitting on their hands, waiting for Jesus to come back. And he's like, okay, let me, <laughs> you guys need some help here. So he says in verse 3, don't let anyone deceive you. Notice the theme? Don't let anyone deceive you in any way. For that day will not come until the rebellion occurs and the man of lawlessness, or some translations say the man of sin, is revealed, the man doomed to destruction. Verse 4, he will oppose and will exalt himself over everything that is called God or is worshipped so that he sets himself up in God's temple, proclaiming himself to be God. 
verse 8. And then the lawless one will be revealed, whom the Lord Jesus will overthrow with the breath of his mouth and destroy by the splendor of his coming. The, law, the coming of the lawless one will be in accordance with how Satan works. He will use all sorts of displays of power through signs and wonders that serve the lie. Three times now we've mentioned there's going to be uh, signs and wonders that are demonic and that deceive many people. Okay, so right before the second coming, according to one interpretation of this chapter, a man of evil will stand in the temple and declare himself to be God. You notice Antiochus uh, and Titus both worshipped their gods in the temple, but this person will declare himself to be God. Okay, so that chapter, 2 Thessalonians uh, 2, dovetails with what we just read in Matthew 24, verse 4, for false Christs and false prophets will rise and show great signs and wonders to deceive, if possible, even the elect. So, uh, now, I recommend we don't underestimate this. A lot of people say, well, Satan can't do anything, so it's just like, it's going to be a trick, like pulling a rabbit out of a hat or something. But remember, Pharaoh's uh, priests were able to turn their staffs into serpents, just like Moses. So there is such a thing as satanic power. It's not anywhere like God's power, but it will deceive many people, and I think we have to be on the lookout for, for things that will look like they're real miracles, but they're going to be a lie. Okay, so back to our passage today. Matthew 24. Uh, you know, every time I've read Matthew 24, I've been torn. And this is one of my favorite chapters in the Bible because I love uh, seeing what Jesus says is going to happen and thinking about it. There's a, lot, there's a lot to think about with that chapter. And it's kind of exciting to know, you know, however bad things look, we win in the end, God wins in the end. But whenever I've read it, I've been torn because sometimes it feels like uh, it's, about Matt, it's about A.D. 70 and the destruction of the temple. And sometimes it feels like it's about the second coming. And... Depending on where you are in the chapter, you think, oh yeah, that's definitely about AD 70. He's talking about the destruction of the temple. But other times it seems like, no, this is definitely about the second coming. And scholars, real Bible scholars, unlike me, who's not a real Bible scholar, but real Bible scholars with THDs. Did you know there's such a thing as a THD? Doctor of theology. Don't go to one if you need a real doctor. <laughs> Don't go to one if you have a... They can read to you in Greek or Hebrew, but if you have a real medical problem, they're not going to be any help. Okay. So, real THDs, uh, brilliant scholars, cannot agree on Matthew 24. So, we're going to look at it and see if we can figure it out today. So, Jesus starts out at the beginning of the chapter by talking about the stones being thrown down. And that seems to speak of the temple's destruction, because that's what actually happened. The stones were thrown down. And then he tells them, he's talking to his disciples, he says, watch out that no one deceives you. You know, if Jesus tells me, watch out that no one deceives you, I'm going to think that's talking about me. And they no doubt receive that as, talking about them. Then he says that, uh, gosh, that's distracting. (laughs) He says, watch out uh, that you will be persecuted. You will be persecuted. You will be put to death. You know, they were persecuted and put to death. That happened. Then he tells them, uh, when you see the abomination that causes desolation, get get out of the city. Get out of Jerusalem. You know, when the Romans came in AD 70, we know from Josephus, they didn't surround the city fully and Jews were able to escape. And no doubt many Christians, remembering Jesus' words, get out, escaped. Because those that remained were slaughtered by the Romans. So Jesus gave them good advice. And finally, Jesus says, verse 34, Truly I tell you, this generation will certainly not pass away until all these things have happened. And so you read that and you think, okay, that's definitely about Matthew. That's definitely about uh, AD 70, the destruction of the temple. It sounds like it was for them in their time. And, but then you keep reading. And what happens in the second half of the chapter? The moon turns red. The sun darkens. The stars fall from the sky. The heavenly bodies shake. 
the sign of the Son of Man appears in the heavens. I've always wondered what that's going to be. Is it a cross? Is it a meteor? I don't know. What if it's like a giant WWJD floating in from space? That would be funny. I have a feeling it's not going to be what it is, but you can always hope. Okay. It says there will be a trumpet call. Angels will come with Jesus, and then the end will come. So at that point, you're like, okay, this is definitely about the end of the world. That's what this chapter is about. So which is it? Well, in light of what we just talked about, dual fulfillment of prophecy, I hope you'll consider this because I've thought about this, and this is the way that I'm able to make sense of this chapter, that the first 28 verses or so, they were all fulfilled already. They came true in Jesus' Jesus's generation at 80, 70. Each thing happened already. And the second part where it talks about the second coming, that hasn't happened yet. Jesus hasn't returned yet, right? Okay. But there's a dual fulfillment here because it's possible that... Uh, the whole chapter is also for the last generation. It could be that there will be another surrounding of Jerusalem, that there will be another abomination, uh, this, this man of lawlessness. It's possible that uh, all this history will repeat itself and um, that the deception will come again and the, the breakdown of most people's love. So be on the lookout in Matthew 24 that God can have multiple fulfillments of prophecies. Okay, so that's how I interpret Matthew 24. Just so you know, you can think about that next time you read it. I've never heard anybody else say it's dual fulfillment, so I kind of feel like I'm out on a limb here, but it just makes sense to my mind. Okay, so I want to hopefully briefly shift gears here because there's something I really have been wanting to preach on for like forever, and I can never find a way to fit it in. It's about the abomination that causes desolation, and I'm just going to fit it in on this chapter, just in this sermon, just to be just for fun. So are you ready for a little fun little rabbit trail? I think you'll appreciate this. Okay. So in uh, Daniel, we read Daniel 11. It mentions the abomination that causes desolation. But did you know the first mention of this is actually two chapters earlier, chapter 9, Daniel chapter 9. And in this chapter, Daniel is visited by the angel Gabriel, and he flies in. It says he came in swiftly on wings. And so verse 23, I'm just going to read this. Next few verses here. Gabriel is talking to Daniel. So pay attention to this. He says, As soon as you began to pray, a word went out, which I have come to tell you, for you are highly esteemed. Wouldn't it be nice to have God send an angel to tell you you're highly esteemed? In Christ, we're all highly esteemed, aren't we? So therefore, consider the word and understand the vision. Verse 24. He says, Seventy sevens. Sometimes it's translated as weeks. The Hebrew word for weeks is slightly different. Um, So I think sevens is a really good word, but... Your Bible might say weeks. Seventy weeks are decreed, or seventy sevens are decreed for your people and your holy city to finish transgression, finish transgression, put an end to sin, atone for wickedness, to bring in everlasting righteousness, seal up vision and prophecy, and anoint the most holy place. So who does this sound like, just off the top of your head? Who's going to put an end to sin? Jesus. Okay. So think about that. Verse 25. No one understand this. From the time the word goes out to restore and rebuild Jerusalem. Remember, at this time, Jerusalem had been destroyed. Again, it's always getting destroyed, this time by the Babylonians. So, uh, restore and rebuild Jerusalem. From the time the word goes out to restore and rebuild Jerusalem to the coming of the anointed one, the ruler, there will be 77s and 62 sevens. I know it shouldn't be math in church, but bear with me. Verse 26, after the 62 sevens, the anointed one will be put to death and will have nothing. Think of Jesus on the cross. They took everything from him. Okay, we're short on time. I'm not going to read the whole thing. But it goes on to say there will be one final seven 
not necessarily consecutive with the others, where the temple will again be attacked and the abomination that causes desolation will again take place. Okay, so let's break this down here. You have seven sevens and 62 sevens. That's 69 sevens or 483 years. You can get out your calculators on your phones and confirm that. 69 times 7, 483. So this covers the time between what and what? The time when the word goes out to rebuild Jerusalem to the coming of the anointed one. 483 years. So I want to look with you, did that happen in history? How accurate was this prophecy? Because if it came true, that'd be pretty amazing, wouldn't it? Daniel's prophesying in the 6th century, so he didn't even know when the word was going to come to rebuild Jerusalem, let alone 483 years later, the Messiah would come. So I want to uh, look with you at, I'm not going to read them, but you can read these on your own. Uh, Two decrees came down from Emperor of Persia, Artaxerxes. They're recorded in Ezra 7 and Nehemiah 2. Ezra 7, Artaxerxes promises Ezra the priest, whatever you need to re-consecrate the temple, gold, silver, all the supplies you could possibly need. It's an extravagant amount of provision he promises Ezra to rebuild the temple. Nehemiah 2, Artaxerxes promises Nehemiah whatever he might need to rebuild Jerusalem, including the walls. Whatever he needs from the royal treasury, it's all yours. So we have two decrees, and it's not clear exactly which one Daniel was writing about. Uh, One came in 458 B.C. We know that because it says, in the year of King Artaxerxes such and such. And we know roughly when that year was, because we know from other sources when he lived. And then in in, uh, Nehemiah, it also says, in the year, and that was 444 B.C. So somewhere between 458 and 444 B.C., these orders came down to rebuild Jerusalem. Now, there's a lot of There's a lot of approximation here. We don't know exactly when Jesus was born. Maybe between 1 and 6 B.C. has to do with when Herod died. And uh, we don't know even exactly when he started his ministry. It says about 30, about 30 years old. So was he 28? Was he 32? So you see there's some some leeway, as there always is when you're dating things from 2,000 or 2,500 years ago. But basically, here's something we know for sure, 100%, no doubt. If you go forward from this time period, 444, 458 B.C., and you move forward in history, 483 years, where do you hit? You hit the late 20s and the 30s AD, which is right when we know Jesus was starting his ministry and doing his work here on earth. Isn't that amazing? I find that to be very fascinating that Daniel was able to prophesy so accurately from the rebuilding of the temple in Jerusalem to the coming of the Messiah, a 483-year gap. God is amazing. This is a supernatural book, my friends. God is pretty good, too. Don't, get, don't worship the book. <laughs> okay. God is pretty good, too. Okay, back to Matthew. There's something crucial about Bible prophecy that my dad spoke well on last week, and I just want to emphasize this and to look, to look with you at why we read Bible prophecy and what we're supposed to do with these amazing prophecies. So I'll tell you a quick story. While I was prepping for this sermon, I stumbled across some YouTube videos from... They're called Prophecy Updates from a mega church pastor in America, 7,000 member church. And they're on YouTube. They're from 1992, but someone has posted them to YouTube, 92, 93. And I thought, oh, that's interesting. I wonder what he said in 92, and I wonder if any of it came true. So I I watched the whole hour-long 92 update, and then again in 93, I watched the whole hour-long 93 update. So I'll have to tell you what, what he said. And this guy is a very good speaker. I was never bored. Never bored. But he went through uh, step by step how all the news of 1992 fits into Daniel, Matthew 24, and Revelation. And it was like, okay, the end of the Cold War. Oh, this is prophesied here, 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 here. And then, 
and then the European Union was forming. All the news of that, of that time. Who, who remembers? 92, none of us. But <laughs> okay. Everything was about, everything that happened that year, that exact year was, was, you could see it in Daniel, Revelation, and Matthew 24. And then he said, so I figured out who the Antichrist is. And he actually names the guy. Are you ready to hear it? I need, like, I need Bob to give me a drum roll. Yeah. Okay. The Antichrist is Juan Carlos. What? What a letdown. <laughs> Juan, King Juan Carlos of Spain. You probably never heard of him. There's no reason for you to have heard of him. And he goes on in great detail how it's King Juan Carlos. Well, 30 years later, it seems a bit silly, doesn't it? Because King Juan Carlos never did any of the Antichrist things. In fact, he abdicated the kingship because he got caught hunting elephants in Africa. Don't hunt elephants in Africa if you're the king of Spain. Everybody knows that. Okay, so nothing happened. And it just seems ridiculous, doesn't it? 7,000-member church, they were all told in great detail over half an hour how the Antichrist is this man. So the next year, I thought, okay, let's see what he said in 93, because I wonder if he was embarrassed that nothing he said came true. So I watched the 93 prophecy update. And this isn't just some kook. This is a huge church he has. And they're all hearing this, and they're all like, yeah, yeah, yeah. And it said, okay, now I figured it all out. Actually, all these events from 1993 are what Daniel, Revelation, and Matthew are about. Never mind 1992. Now it's about 1993. And I figured out who the, who the Antichrist is. Now I know for sure. Are you ready? Oh, I wrote it down. Vladimir Zuranovsky. If you've never heard of him, neither had I. Uh, he had a Wikipedia page. He has one. He was... He made some waves in 1993. He got some headlines. He's a Russian nationalist. And he was criticizing America and saying Russia was going to reestablish its empire and so on. But then he went on to do absolutely nothing. And no one's ever heard of him since then. And, you know, every year there's a prophecy update and there's a new Antichrist. And all the news of that year are really, now you can find them in Scripture. And it's like that every year. And I don't know, these people keep coming back. Thousands of people keep coming back. They're like, yeah, yeah. I guess people really want to hear that Daniel, Revelation, and Matthew 24 are all about that exact year because it kind of makes you feel excited, like, oh, it's all about to happen. But when you look back 30 years later, it looks ridiculous, the things that they say. So I'm not going to tell you who it is because I don't want you to think that I'm tearing anybody down, but I do feel quite free to tear down false ideas. So I think that that approach to history and to prophecy where you say, it's all about us right now, and we can look through the headlines and find who the Antichrist is, it makes you look like you're a false prophet when you, p- people look back at what you said 30 years later. Unless you happen to get it exactly right, which no one has done yet. Okay, so, <laughs> as I'm watching this, remember I just read Matthew 24, 25 over and over again to get ready to preach. And as I'm hearing him talk like this, I'm thinking about what it says in Matthew 24. Four times, I didn't put these verses into the computer, but four times it says, no one knows about that day or hour. That's 24:36. 24:42. therefore keep watch because you do not know on what day your Lord will come. 44, so you also must be ready because the Son of Man will come in an hour you do not expect. And 25, 13, therefore keep watch because you do not know the day or the hour. So when people talk about knowing when it's going to happen, no offense to any of you, I know you're all very smart people. But if Jesus didn't know, you don't know. (laughs) And I don't know. Okay. So what's the harm though really I mean, didn't Jesus say to be ready? What's the harm in trying to figure it all out? What's the big deal? Well, apart from this particular person getting his predictions wrong over and over again, which I think we're supposed to get prophecy right. Is that 
Did I read that somewhere? Okay. Um, the emphasis of that approach. What's the, what's the mood that you create in the church? Being in the know. Having the secret knowledge. You know, the world is about to go through tribulation and hell, but we're the ones who have it all figured out. And I want to tell you, as my dad said last week, readiness does not mean trying to decipher the exact timeline of Christ's return. And readiness does not mean being clever and solving all the little puzzles. Readiness means fulfilling his purpose for you. Going door to door, I had a guy who follows his pastor's teaching. Look at me like I was crazy. Why are you evangelizing? He was bewildered. I mean, he was friendly, but he was bewildered. He said, the world's about to end. I'm just waiting for the rapture. And I resisted the temptation to put my hands around his neck. If you think the rapture's about to happen, that's all the more reason to get people saved. <laughs> so listen, even when all those signs that we read about in Matthew 24 come true right to the end, when the moon is blood red and the stars are falling from the sky, if that hasn't happened yet, there's been blood moons and so on. People say maybe that was it, but let's say it hasn't happened yet. If it hasn't, even then, until your feet leave the ground, you are called to be salt and light. In fact, as you're floating away, I said this last night, some people here have to hear the same jokes twice. As you're floating away, you can be shouting down to your friend next to you, you need Jesus, okay? So Jesus followed up his Matthew prophecy with two parables. We read them last week. Matthew 25, the parable of the ten virgins, and five were wise, five were foolish, and the parable of the talents. So this is Jesus' follow-up to Matthew 24. This is how he's teaching us how do we respond to Matthew 24 in these parables. And what does he tell us? One, the parable of the virgins. We are taught the crucial aspect of possessing the Holy Spirit now. The oil. It means Holy Spirit. The oil. Fill your lamp up now. Don't wait. Okay. The parable of the talents. We're taught the cruciality of fulfilling his purpose for us while this life lasts. Not to bury your talents. If you're waiting around for the rapture and you're not doing anything, what are you doing? You're doing the exact opposite of what he said in Matthew 24, 25. Don't bury your talents. That's the whole point of, this, of these chapters. Yes, he's coming. Yes, he's in control. So don't bury your talents. Use them. So the biblical response to prophecy is not to try to jam all the news of today into Revelation, into Matthew 24, into Daniel, as much as that might be tempting to do that. The reason he gives us prophecy is so that we can know not to worry, not to be anxious when things seem to be going crazy in this world, not to let ourselves get stressed out. We should know he's the God of history. He wins in the end. And he is coming back to reclaim this world. So whatever you do, here's the biblical response to prophecy. Do not bear your talent as you wait all these things. Jesus' response to prophecy, as he teaches his disciples, that's us. Be ready. Be ready. Be ready. And readiness means fill yourself up with the oil of the Holy Spirit. And then go out and use your gifts, your talents, to bring heaven to earth. All right. Now, I'm going to pray, and then I'm going to give four prophecies for healing and deliverance for people to come forward and after church. Okay, so let's pray. Thank you, Lord, for Matthew 24. Thank you for Daniel. Thank you that your word is so amazing that it comes true not once but multiple times. 
You really do know everything. It's amazing. We love you, and we're so awed by what you can do. We pray that as we study Revelation, Daniel 24, sorry, Matthew 24, Daniel, that we will be inspired to know that you're in control, that you're the God of history, that you win in the end, and that you have a plan for us. You have a, a purpose for every single person in this room, including the children, that you've prepared before the creation of the world, and that your delight in us is to fulfill that purpose. And we will love that purpose. We will love fulfilling the purpose you have for us. It's what we were made for, and there's great joy in that. So we're excited, and I just declare over everyone here that they will be encouraged by prophecy to relax, to have peace, and then to be inspired to fulfill your purpose for them, for their lives. In Jesus' name, amen. Okay, are you ready? Now, I might need some help because I think a lot of people are going to come forward for healing. Heart pain, it could be physical heart, it could be emotional. Back pain, he always gives me back pain. I'm always like, Lord, there's going to be like 20 people. Back pain, come forward for back pain. Financial trouble, specifically trouble, like you feel like you're in trouble. Need to be sure you're saved, need to be sure you're going to heaven. If you've been wondering and worrying, am I saved, am I going to heaven, please come forward. And I need the altar team. Any prophets who can help and any healers can come forward. Okay, Pastor Dan, you want to close us off? Thank you, David. Let's stand. And if you'd like to respond to those words of knowledge for healing needs, please come forward. And you know, those words are for those of those of us that are watching on channel 11 and 11 as well watching on tv or our youtube channel if you're identifying with any of those words just uh just receive that healing touch that area of your body or or um your even the television screen says or your computer screen just touch it as a point of faith like i am receiving i'm receiving that healing i'm claiming i'm receiving it so that's for you too it's not just for the people here these words so so I want to thank everybody for being with us today it's been a great day in God's house in worship and in the gifts of the spirit and the teaching of the word of God so always remember we love you and God loves you and may he answer all of your prayers above and beyond what you're asking or even imagining and uh, don't forget that um, if you'd like to pick up a a uh, list of the Enjoying Fellowship groups at the lobby welcome table. You can do that. Or stick around afterwards for uh, prophetic words, personal words through uh, Jack Bouget and team today. They'll have very inspiring words for us today. God bless you. Have a, have a great week.